Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, October the 3rd, 2018. This is episode 2304 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, so it's Wednesday, so that's interview day. We're going to have a good one today. Uh, I'm bringing back a guest we had on a couple of years ago, at least now. His name is Jeremy Zimmerman. And I had him on before to talk about his first book, which was Make Me Like a Viking. And Make Me Like a Viking really changed a lot about how I make alcoholic beverages as a whole. We'll talk about that someday, but what we're really here to talk about today is his new book, Brewing Beer Like a Yeti. Actually, it's Brew Beer Like a Yeti, and it's a, it's a really cool book, and Jeremy's a really cool guy. We're going to talk about natural fermentation. We're going to talk about all the different styles of beer, more from a historical standpoint than the way that, say, beer is judged today in a competition. It's going to be a great interview. We'll have him on in just a moment before. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. We're going to talk about herbs today and, and alcoholic beverages, but we're talking about really more about medicinal herbs. Of course, those, those the medicinal herbs can go in alcoholic beverages. A big tradition of that. We talked about that recently too. But man, if it's herbal and legal in the United States, guess what? You can find it at Western Botanicals. And if you get it from Western Botanicals, you're going to find that it's either organically grown or wildcrafted. And if you pick up the phone and call them and say, hey, I need some help, you're going to get real people that really care about you that answer the phone in Utah, not New Delhi, and help you, you know, out with your customer service needs. Western Botanicals is a mission-driven company with a goal, and that is to put an herbalist in every home in America. You can learn more about them at westernbotanicals.com, and if you are an MSB member, they do offer a discount uh, program that sells for 50 bucks a year, but you can get it for free. Details are in the benefits section of the MSB. Next up today is Ready Made Resources, the company that says what it does and does what it says. All the resources you need, ready made and ready to go for you on their website at readymaderesources.com. They've got everything from the practical to the tactical to guns and gardens and everything in between at a company that says what it does and does what it says, readymaderesources.com. And before I bring Jeremy on, let's take a look at this day in history. We're not going to go back that far. Many of you will remember this. We're going back to 1994, October 3rd, 1994. O.J. Simpson was acquitted. At the end of a sensational trial, former football star O.J. Simpson is acquitted of the brutal 1994 double murder of his, of his estranged wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend Ron Goldman. In the epic 252-day trial, Simpson's dream team of lawyers employed creative and controversial methods to convince jurors that Simpson's guilt had not been proved beyond a reasonable doubt, thus summoning what the prosecution called a, quote, mountain of evidence uh, implicating him as the murderer. Orenthal James Simpson, a Heisman Trophy winner, star running back with the Buffalo Bills and popular television personality, married to Cole Brown, in 1985, he regularly abused his wife and in 1989 pleaded no contest to a charge of spousal battery. In 1992, she left him and filed for divorce. 
On the night of June 12, 1994, Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman were stabbed and slashed to death in the front yard of Mr. Simpson's con uh, Miss Simpson's condominium in Brentwood, Los Angeles. By June 17th, police had gathered enough evidence to charge O.J. Simpson with the murders. Um, I, I think that if you're old enough to kind of remember this, like if you're in your late 30s and above, you know how big a deal this was. If you're not, you probably don't. Remember like when you were in school how when certain things would happen that were big national news events, like the space shuttle, Uh, the first space shuttle that blew up is one I remember from school. They would wheel TV sets into the classroom and like you'd stop school stuff and kids, this is important, something bad happened. And it was, you know, kind of that level of thing. I don't think they did the O.J. Simpson thing in school. What they did do, and I found this fascinating even at the time, I was a contractor at the time working for Lockheed Martin. Uh, I was managing their optical networks at a huge campus that they have in Grand Prairie, Texas. This is a place that, you know, they, they, they had more than, uh, more than 9,000 phone numbers at this one complex. That's how big this place was. And there was a huge cafeteria, and a lot of people came there to eat lunch. They wheeled two TV sets in because it just so happened that the verdict was being read at around lunchtime for most people when the cafeteria was open and it was there was that much interest in it and i watched grown adults sitting in a cafeteria and for the time that that was on tv it reminded me of high school people were glued to this trial they wanted to know how it was going to come down you want to know what i think I think the jury did their job, and under the circumstances that they were put in, they got it right. However, I absolutely do believe he was guilty. And this is one of the reasons I do not have faith in the American justice system. If the American justice system can fail to the point where an obviously guilty man goes free, it can certainly fail to the point where an obviously innocent man goes to prison or worse. That's my thoughts on it, and it's a lesson from history of not that long ago. And with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of our show. We're going to talk about brewing beer, and specifically brewing beer like a Yeti. And with that, I have the author, Jeremy Zimmerman, ready to come on the air with us. Hey, Jeremy, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Well, thanks for having me again. Glad to have you, man. We had a great time last time. We talked about you know making mead like a Viking, uh, which I, I loved your first book. Uh, it got a lot out of it, and I really enjoyed our conversation. So uh, when uh, you got with me by coming back and talking about your new book, Brew Beer Like a Yeti, I was happy to bring you back on. But I, I bet you a lot of people don't know who Jeremy Zimmerman is, and I try to connect my audience with a guest on a personal level. So kind of, I don't know, take us back to like high school and your space out in study hall or something, you know, and... and, and Kind of what what have you done in your life? A little you know the spiel on profession, you know your professional side, and how did you get into you know making beer, meads, and stuff like that? All right, um, yeah, high school is actually the least interesting part of my uh, <laughs> history, <laughs> primarily because that's the only time I actually went to school. I was homeschooled all the way up through ninth grade, and my dad taught at um, at a high school, taught English, and for some reason I decided I needed socialization, which I guess I did, but. <laughs> So before that, um, you know, my parents were part of the Back to the Land movement, it was called back then. So they bought a completely dilapidated farmhouse on about 40 acres. And me and my uh, four siblings grew up just helping tear walls down, build that house up into the beautiful farmhouse it is now, playing in the woods. My dad made country wines from stuff he foraged and grew. 
So you know, all that kind of stuff kind of helped make me who I am today. And from there, I went through the four-year boring period of high school, and then then uh, and that was this was all in Kentucky. It's it's in northern Kentucky, kind of near the Cincinnati area. And then I went down to eastern Kentucky to Berea College, which I now live in that town again. Got an English degree, headed to Seattle because I want somewhere different. Bought my first homebrew kit, and you know from there. Somehow I ended up writing a book called Make Me Like a Viking. All right. Well, that, like I said, that was really a great book. Um, I, I really, like I said, got a, a ton out of it. But you've got this new book out now, Brew Beer Like a Yeti. I, I really understood the title of the first one. Mead, <laughs> Vikings, that kind of just is a thing, right? Like you think Viking, right. you think Mead. Maybe you don't always think Viking when you hear Mead, but... You hear Viking, you think mead. Yetis yep. and beer, man. What's up with that? Where, where's that come from? Well, it's basically that the main reason for the title was the publisher and I were trying to figure out something to make it kind of go along with Make Mead Like a Viking. And the, re the, the way the Yeti part came about is I first started really blogging about my kind of brewing adventures on a website that's no longer around called earthandear.com. And I came up with the uh, kind of online handle of uh, Redheaded Yeti. And I've become known as, you know, the Yeti, but obviously the entire world does not exactly associate Yetis with beer, but maybe they will now. <laughs> <laughs> but we went, I went way beyond Viking in this one, so we just couldn't do brew beer like a Viking. I and mean, I covered so many other cultures and stories and traditions. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of how it all came about. Yeah, I, I know more than a few bearded ones who are, are referred to as uh, Yetis uh, yeah. from a, a nickname standpoint. In fact, uh, my personal knife maker, a good friend of the show, Patrick Rorman, is often referred to as the Yeti. And every once in a while, he, he's, he's, he pulls one over on us, and he doesn't shave, but he, he trims up real real fine. And it's like, hey, what's up, man? You, you're, you're blowing your name now. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's a good marketing spin, too. I like it. And it, it does – they do pair nice with each other. Uh, so well done on that. Uh, what led you down the path of exploring the history of mead and, and beer brewing with kind of this hands-on how-to focus? Um, well, I guess a lot of it has to do with my upbringing. It's, there, there's a certain part of me that just wants to do things on my own, wants to learn how to do things as hands-on as possible, you know, how to make not just alcohol but food and whatever else I can. You know, as from scratch as possible. So, you know, after doing a few batches of beer with your standard beer kit and going exactly by the instructions and using all the ingredients you're supposed to use, it only took a couple batches for me to just start throwing random stuff in. And, you know, not not completely random. I at least researched it and tried to make sure it was stuff, something that made sense. And then, you know, as I discovered mead and I was already into Vikings and mythology and that something clicked and I was like, wait, even a hundred years ago, much less than the time of Vikings, people brewed without using hardly any of the stuff that is, you know, talked about is absolutely necessary today. So yeah, that's, that's kind of where the whole DIY spin started going. And then I connected with the homesteading movement or survivalism or sustainability, whatever you want to call it and found a big audience there and it's just kind of gone from there. 
you, you mean back, you know, a couple hundred years ago even, that you didn't just run down to the home brew store and get some, uh, you know, pale uh, malt extract and uh, some pelletized hops? That's not how it worked? Yeah, or sanitizers or, you know, even plastic airlocks. I mean, pretty much everything we use, and I use a lot of it still too, but, you know, and not even just historically, traditionally, there are still a lot of cultures that brew by the ancient ways. Well, yeah, I mean, you actually kind of changed what I was doing from a, a sanitation standpoint when I read uh, Make Me Like a Viking. Like, I, I decided right then that I would start making at least my small batch meats because it was a small risk. I would use no sanitizer. That all I would do is rinse out my containers with hot water. And I was like, if I ever have a problem, then I'll go back to using some sort of a sanitizer. And that was three and a half years ago, and I have not bothered since, and I have not had a bad batch. I've had maybe some interesting characteristics show up that might not have otherwise been there, but I've not had a bad batch. Yeah, and what what did that? What started it for me was reading the book uh, Wild Fermentation by Sander Katz, and he talked about traveling to Africa and you know having all these amazing meads and beers and seeing how it was made with just completely rustic materials. You know, they weren't. San, you know, sanitizers weren't anywhere around, and so I did the same thing. I was like, "Yeah, I don't know about this." And <laughs> started playing around, and now I've still got some sanitizer that's been sitting around for years. Just, Every just, once in a while, if you know something's really it, some equipment's been hanging out in the basement or something, I yeah. might. But yeah, you know, I just treat it like I do cooking. I just I'm clean, but I don't obsess. And actually, it's it's freed me up a lot. There, I don't, brewing is a, is a lot more fun now that I'm not trying to make sure everything's separated and completely sanitized. And well, because you're you're bottling, so you get your your hose out, and then you, you sanitize the hose, and then you have the racking cane, and then you're like, well, I got to set the thing down. So if I set it down, then do I have to? It, it gets to be you know kind of maddening, and you don't want to do it, and that's kind of against the whole point. And it was difficult for me because I I mean I started out. Brewing with a, a dog-eared yellow-paged copy of uh, the, the Complete Joy of Home Brewing by Charlie Papazian. Yep, same here. <laughs> you know, more than 20 years ago. So by the time I read your book, I had been doing it for 20 years. And when you do something for 20 years, you become convinced that the way you're doing it is the way you have to do it. And I, I found it interesting when I started posting to some of the mead groups on Facebook and stuff and said, you know, I was making meads and all I was doing was rinsing the container with hot tap water. People got mad. I mean, they yeah, got angry. I, they were yelling at me, you know, in all caps and stuff. And I'm like, dude, I I don't know what to tell you, man. I've caught the same thing. I mean, not always directly at me, but, you know, just kind of browsing forums and stuff. And it's people take it personally. It's like, <laughs> this is me. I mean, that's why I tell people in my book. I'm like, brew how you want. Sure. I mean, yeah, I'm teaching people. And so supposedly I'm expected to tell them how to do it right. But, you know, like I, I, I like to say, I don't like being told what to do if I... If I think something, if I think something's worth trying, I'll give it a shot, and if it works for me, then I'll tell other people about it. <laughs> it's interesting what people choose to be outraged about. But yeah. um, uh, in what ways, you know, kind of bringing it around to the, the world we talk about here, we talk about things like sustainability, permaculture, modern homesteading, locavore movements. How is that reflected in, in your approach to, to brewing beer? Because I know those things are, are big deals in your life. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's just such an integral part of me that I don't even realize I'm doing it sometimes. It's when I started writing and talking about it that I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I do kind of fit in these movements. 
But, you know, with meat, it was so much easier to do, you know, almost completely local, you know, natural, raw, organic, everything, because it's just honey and water. I can source local honey, local spring water, ingredients, you know, for my garden if I want. So beer, I can still do that to a degree, but it's it's a little tougher with the malted grains. Now, fortunately, there's an artisanal malting movement where a lot of smaller malt houses are starting to pop up and can provide brewers with local grains. I don't have any super near me. So, you know, I, I don't always use hops in my beer, so I can still use a lot of herbs that I have in my garden or sometimes I just order from the website. And I, I do think the minimal use of chemicals is still always a part of that or pretty much no use of chemicals as far as sanitizers. And I don't know, just an overall mindset, like just the idea of not approaching a beer recipe going, I'm going to use this exact amount of malt and this exact amount of hops and plugging it all into Beersmith, which is a piece of software you can get to uh, create beer recipes, which is fine for people who do that kind of thing. But for me, it's it's a lot like the way I cook. It's just like you know, I know this ingredient, what it does. I'm gonna put a little bit in, see what happens. <laughs> well, I, you know, and I get things like that. I, I'm familiar with Beersmith. I, I actually used to use it a lot. Um, if you're trying to make a you know a, a classic pilsner to enter into a competition that's supposed to be correct for style, all right, I get it. But the more I thought about it as, as I've kind of loosened up and kind of my, my former tight ass approach to doing this stuff was like, I don't see any of this stuff having been done a hundred, even a hundred years ago. Like that's just not how people, a lot of the stuff that we use, they didn't even have. And you know, every housewife in America made ciders and beers and stuff like that for their husbands and, and you know, colonial times and even pre-colonial times and what have you. So I, I think it, it kind of makes a lot of sense to just say like, We've had alcohol in, in, in the, the walk of human existence for, best guess, I think it's around 6,000 years. So the, the majority of that time, all the stuff that we say is so important today, we didn't even have the ability to do. So why not at least try what our ancestors did? Yeah, and what, I, I feel like prohibition kind of hit the reset button for us. So mm. people stopped. I mean, they obviously didn't stop making booze, but they had to do it in a completely different way. And then... When the homebrew movement started up again in the late 70s, early 80s, then, you know, it's everybody doing it then. And, you know, know, people I learned from, Charlie Pavazian. And so the stuff that they wrote, and, you know, vast majority of it still is, you know, great information and great to follow. But certain things like the sanitization and some of the equipment and stuff became so ingrained in people's minds as this is how you have to do it. People just kind of didn't think back to before that time period and and how it was done i think a lot of the prohibition fud you know that was around about you know exploding bottles and people dying and stuff like that like there was enough of that left that it kind of influenced what these guys were doing and to be fair like they didn't have a book to go by they were the first ones to kind of to to recreate that craft and i do know like a lot of the stuff with like the malt extract and all that did come from prohibition uh i'm from pottsville Home of Yingling beer and, yep. and nothing else. Like, that is the only thing that Plottsville is known for. And um, I, they are the oldest brewery in America. And they're the oldest brewery in America for uh, a, a, a kind of a weird reason. They're really not. They're the oldest continuously operating because they survived Prohibition because they made ice cream. Yep. Mal- malted 
ice cream. And they would sell you malt. So people could get malt. So they used malt to make beer. Because a lot of people that were making beer back then, a lot like the 70s, they didn't know how to make beer. It had gotten to the point where we wanted a beer. You went to the bar or you went to the store and bought some beer. So I think people were less inclined to make beer at that point. So malt extract is a shortcut to beer. And I, I think that's a big part of why kind of the movement started with it because it was freely available. And, you know, you're like Grandpa. Because you got to figure those guys. That's what they did, right? They went, hey, Grandpa, during Prohibition, did you make beer? Yeah, how'd you make it? Right? you got to figure that's how most of those guys kind of got their start. Yeah, and I by no means want to, you know, put them down or anything no. like that. Uh, but, yeah, you, that's, you make a great point. It's they... They worked with what they had. I mean, they did have, I know Papazian, from what I understand, was able to get some information from people who were brewing in in uh, Great Britain, in the U.K. So I think he, he based a little bit of his ideas off of that. But again, those were the more modern brewers. And he's writing so, a book yeah. trying to get other people to do it. So what's easier than buy this, boil this, put this together, stick an airlock on it? So he was also trying to make it something that would get guys like you and me to get started. Yeah, I mean, relax, have a homebrew. That mantra is still <laughs> part of. It's you know, funny because it funny. is. Yeah, because it gets you, you see it pop up all the time, right? You're like not even talking about brewing, and then you see somebody like somebody gets all wound up. You just hear somebody throw that out, man. Relax and have a homebrew. But let's get back to kind of the stuff you're doing. You've got different styles in this book, and it talk you talk about beer and ale and grit. What kind of talk about those first? What Are your thoughts on styles and what makes a beverage a beer versus an ale, etc.? Well, I mean, I, I guess I kind of have my own thoughts on all of that. But as I was doing all this research historically, um, I, I found all kinds of stuff that just goes against our modern conception of what beer is. You know, like a lot of beer recipes from, say, like the 1800s were just made from like brown sugar or molasses. There were no actual malted grains. So things like ginger beer. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, I'll give that a try. So, you know, with me personally, I'm fine with mixing various sugars and you can call it what you want. But I know it's it's very important to, to have style designations to a certain degree so you know what to expect. Um, so with Just me, so it's, we can have conversations with each other yeah. and, and use the same vocabulary. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's become a little too constricted as far as definition these days, but... You know, from what I understood, beer, at least uh, in like early Britain, beer and ale were separated as, you know, ale is what people would brew for a long time, a high alcohol, high malt, um, herbal drink. And then as hops started being used, people made it with, with less grains, lower alcohol, and started adding hops to it for preservative. So for a while there, that was the designation was beer was a light hopped Drink and ale was kind of a high alcohol multi drink, usually with herbs. And every time hops start getting added to that, so now we look at it as ale is a top ferment, meaning you use a yeast that kind of hangs out at the top and does the fermentation. And beer is more like a lager where it's bottom ferment that the kind of the yeast hangs out in the bottom. But then when I got even further back historically, just just looking at the etymology of both the words beer and ale. It got really kind of confusing. I don't think anybody ever really knew. You know, for the most part, it was, hey, I mixed a bunch of sugars together and got it fermenting and it tastes good. So, yeah. <laughs> who cares what you call it? 
And then Groot's a whole other story. You want me to jump into that one? Yeah, please. I mean, I think that's one that'd be interesting to people. Yeah, I, I'm still digging into that. As I started researching it, I got to know some people who are into these historical brewing groups that really try to be as authentic as possible. And a good friend of mine, uh, Susan Verberg, she's uh, originally Dutch. She's from the Netherlands, lives in upper state New York now. But so she's finding all these sources in Dutch and in German and Old English, and she can read all those. So as she's looking into it and passing her info along to me, you know, we're starting to discover that whereas most people think of Groot now is just, you know, basically a, an ale made with herbs and no hops, and it could be any herbal combination. And then a lot of the books, the kind of more recent books I read, talked about how it was how different Groot houses, which were the breweries of the time, had proprietary herbal mixes, and that's kind of what, what Groot was. Each one had their own herbal mix. Then, it, you know, as I dug further into it, it, it was looking like, you know, the word Groot kept having different meanings. In one case, it was like a fermentation enhancer, so sort of like this mix of nutrients and, uh, you know, yeast, maybe dehydrated yeast that was then used, sold and then used to kickstart a brew. <laughs> and then there was a tax created on Groot, so that at some point, the word group referred specifically to the tax. Huh. It, it, yeah, to be honest, it gets complicated. So I, I pared down a lot of what I wrote and did just a couple pages in the book because I was going too far afield. <laughs> but it, it is something I'm definitely delving into more to try to get a get a handle on it. Well, and I, you know, if you think about just in in our lifetimes, I think you're maybe a little younger than me, but you're you're close ish to my age. We can think of words during our lifetime that the entire meaning of that word has changed. And, you know, to kind of put us in, in check, like, we haven't been around that long compared to history. Uh, so these are words through different languages over maybe centuries. The meaning themselves of the word over time changes. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, being a, an English major and a history geek, that's something that... I was interested in anyway, but just in my research, I found that, you know, the etymology of words is is a big thing. It, 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 you know, has a large role in kind of how we develop as humans and how words change. And, you know, the thing is still what it is, but when we start using different words for it and give different meanings to those words, that's where, you know, I don't know, history kind of starts to go in other directions. <laughs> Have you ever read any of the stuff, uh, uh, the fiction stuff uh, Pierce Anthony has done on... Uh, like the origins of mankind, I can't remember the name of the books, but it was the constant. There was this, the Geodacy series, was it? And it was this same characters being reincarnated over and over again in different time frames. You know, I, I'm aware of them, and I think I have heard of those stories, but no, I haven't checked them out. The, uh, the the theory that ends up postulated in several of those books is that language is evolved by children, huh. especially as as different societies come together. The kids take each of their language and combine them and make new words and new meanings for words. And it, well, I mean, it seems pretty plausible. I just, I, it's an aside, but just when you kind of gave us your background there, I just found that interesting. Well, it makes sense. I mean, as I'm getting older, you know, especially the generation that we call the millennials now, you know, they're, they're coming up with all these hybrids of words and words. And sometimes I just cringe. And I'm like, why do you talk like that? <laughs> I guess that just shows I'm getting old. But yeah. Yeah, I, I don't mind most of their words, but when they start using words like microaggressions, that's right. Like, I get an eye twitch, you know, like, I, ah, anyway, going back to this, um, 
Can you talk about brewing technique? What techniques, when it comes to making beers and, and stuff, do you practice, and how have they changed since you began to study historical brewing? Um, well, the way I break it down into my book, and you know, I, I started trying techniques and you know combinations of different ingredients that I hadn't even thought of in the past. But starting with Make Me Like a Viking, as I was doing the research for that, I started to discover all this different stuff. So the way I outline it in Brew Beer Like a Yeti is I start with what I call simple ales. And then I go into these funky historical recipes that aren't necessarily complicated, but they are process intensive. So the simple ales, I, I get those from you know, one of my early inspirations was the book. I think it's Sacred Herbal and Healing Beers by Stephen Harabuner. And nearly all of his recipes, I think all of them, used like brown sugar and molasses and stuff. And he's like, it tastes, tastes enough like beer to me that I'll call it that. So to me, they taste more like a hard soda, but they're very easy to make. So I decided to call them simple ales. So yeah, starting with that, I just, if I just want to throw something together quick on the stovetop, get some water warm, put about a pound of usually cane sugar in, kind of dissolve that. And then I put what herbs I want, make a tea out of it. And at that, you know, then I cool it down and ferment it however I need to and bottle, you know, prime it. And then I've got basically this kind of hard soda, beer-like beverage. And then from there I go into the, you know, in the book I go, I talk a little bit about extract brewing because that's still, it's a good way for people to start if they don't want to deal with all the equipment for brewing with grain. And then when it goes into all grain, I talk, you know, I talk enough about how people do it in modern times and what's supposed to happen. But I, I kind of veer off course a little bit when I start talking about these beers like Sati in Finland. And I've, I've been following some blogs of people who are going and visiting farmhouses there where they do things like not boiling the wort, which is unfermented beer for people who aren't familiar with that. And they do all kinds of funky mash temperatures some, when, you're, when you're mashing the grains to get the sugars out. So my brewing technique has kind of started to become a mix of all of those things. So I, you know, I play around with not mashing at, at the standard temperatures, with doing things like only heating using a, you know, big old hot rock from a fire, which was a <laughs> traditional way of brewing. And so, yeah, it's, it, I, I just kind of go into all kinds of directions and just experiment and see what happens. Yeah, because, I mean, like, As I started evolving as a brewer and a mead maker myself over the years, I would often think, like when it would say, you know, to hold this temperature for this amount of time, wait a minute, people were doing this before they had igloo coolers and thermometers. Right? Yeah, so so how, how can you possibly tell me that even after the, let's say, the German purity law or whatever, that around that time that brewers were holding mash turns at specific temperatures for a specific time when they didn't have a thermometer yet. Yeah, I mean, it's there's a pretty big range as to what will, you know, you'll get something fermentable regardless. The temperatures might affect kind of how dry the beer is. They'll have subtle effects. But, you know, to be fair, once people started realizing, you know, that pasteurization and using hops is what kills off what was once called the beer disease. Yeah. And once they got they got into these, okay, these temperatures work better than sure. And their their beers became a lot more consistent, especially if they're selling commercially. But I do recall a uh, 
one of the stories in my book, I can't remember the names of who they were, but as the uh, thermometer and hydrometer started becoming used, uh, there was one guy, a brewer, I think he ran a brewery who just would not have anything to do with it. And he kept brewing by the old way. And he just kind of, you know, he just kind of went away. Like his brewery just kind of died. Probably, from, probably more from lack of consistency than quality. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's one reason why you know, all this stuff with sanitization and specific recipes is pushed is, you know, if you're going to brew commercially, you need consistency, but, you know, you're a home brewer, you may aspire to that, but that doesn't mean you have to do it when you're just brewing for yourself and your friends. See, to me, it makes us more like winemakers. Yeah. Like, you could do everything exactly the same way, everything by process, but different years of, of wines are going to taste different, even if they're aged for the same period of time, and then you left notes behind. So you've tasted both of them at three years, just a year apart. The, the grape changes, so the wine changes. And I, I kind of like that as a home producer. Yeah, no, I, I like that concept. And to be honest, you know, none of this stuff I was doing was ever initially meant to be, hey, this is how everyone should do it. But it was just the way that my life is crazy living in an old house that I'm constantly fixing up and everything's a mess because of the kids. And, I mean, I, I can't focus on specifics as much as as I was being told I should. And I, I was just brewing how I needed to. Yeah. And it, it worked out fine. So I was like, well, why not let other people know? Because I'm, I'm probably not the only one who lives this way. <laughs> as you've looked back over history of beers, right, Where where does carbonation really come in? I mean, I imagine some of the first beers, like, they were drinking them when they were still fermenting, so they were getting some bubbles from that. But, you know, you have to have a sealed vessel to do carbonation. So beer kind of predates a lot of what you would think of doing that or no. Because or, I'm pretty open to almost any style of beer, but I don't like flat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's hard to say exactly when that came about. But, yeah, like you said, a lot of the times it was drank while it was still fermenting, which is it's not quite the same as a carbonated beer, but it, you've still got that that kind of fizz. And some beers even today are traditionally drank flat or nearly flat, like sati. But, um, I, yeah, it definitely carbonation became a thing when I'd say around when the bottle, the glass bottles were you know, completely sealable vessels. I'm sure, I'm sure they played around with it with barrels and stuff like that. But I, I do remember a story of, of one of the first um, when people started brewing with bottles and how they were still learning that, okay, well, <laughs> this is potentially dangerous. And something about, you know, the guy opened the bottle for the first time and he was like, it was like a gunshot. <laughs> so, yeah. I've, never, I've never broken one. I've had a few overcarbonate, though, that when you open them, boy, you know it was overcarbonated. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've never had any explode on me but i think i have occasionally had some where the rest of the batch was fine but went down the basement and the bottle was busted and i don't know if maybe it was just a weak bottle or what yeah. but but it happens yeah so when you brew how do you work to minimize and and repurpose ingredients such as like things like spent grain and water and yeast um you know when i can brew so that i, I finish or at least I rack one one batch of beer, and I'm and getting ready to start another one. You know, sometimes I'll just put a put a lid back, an airlock back in that bucket, and leave all the sediment behind, and then pour the next batch into it, and, you, and it pretty much always starts up right away. 
So that's one way to kind of reuse yeast is to kind of use some of the previous batch. Uh, I don't do that all the time. Sometimes uh, if I get a good yeast I like, I try and save it like in a jar in the fridge or something. And, and to be honest, you know, I'm, I'm not consistent about this just because of the craziness of my life. You know, mm-hmm. think some people, I get the idea. Some people think that I've, I've got all these yeast strains saved up, and I, <laughs> uh, a lot of the stuff I write about, I do, but not necessarily all the time, just because the part of it is because I've continued to experiment. But with the grains, it's tough. I don't. You know, I, I currently live on. You know, I, I guess I do what you might call modern homesteading or urban homesteading. I have a decent-sized yard, but no animals other than some pets. My neighbors for a while had chickens, and we're going to get some again together. So that's one thing you can do as far as spent grains. You're not reusing them, but at least they're getting some kind of use. And when I get a chance, I, I try to, and sometimes I'll just save some in the freezer. But like I'll do something like make dog biscuits out of them, and I've got a recipe for that in the book. And I'm experimenting with making bread from the spent grains. That's a little tougher because you got to get them completely dried out first, and then you got to grind them up finer. But you know, as far as reusing, there's a lot of things you can do with those grains, or save them for a farmer who's got a bunch of pigs or something. Is another option. Uh, go ahead. No, I, I think that's it for now. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was to say with the yeast, I, I the big thing I've used to do. I, I actually make a, a heck of a lot more cider and mead now than I do beer. But uh, when I did a lot of beers, I would often do like let's say a Belgian style simple ale, uh, but using something that would work for like an Abbey, and that's going to be a lot higher gravity. So then I would pitch the uh, the wort for the the high gravity beer onto the the the, the trouble from the uh, prior batch because it needed that and it would go. I mean, you know, right. you, you, you overflow hose on it or something because you know you you drop something with you know twelve pounds of fermentables onto uh, you know a, a two inch thick uh, yeast cake. Uh, yeah. You're gonna get a kind of explosive start and it worked really well. Uh, I never did much with like trying to save a portion of it or whatever or or even split it. And I think that goes back to my, you know, what, what, what like messing up lack of sanitation concerns and stuff like that. I'm going to mess the yeast up by moving it into another vessel, which is, I think, kind of silly. But there is some of that residual that I guess kind of stuck with me. Plus, yeast is cheap. Yeah, yeah, no, I get that. Uh, one interesting thing about that is some of the farmhouse brewing. Uh, I think it's on a website called um, a guy in Norway, I think. Uh, Lars blog is his website, but he, he's got all these pictures and these detailed you know, blog entries about visiting these farmhouse brewers, and they use a yeast called that you can actually get at you know, homebrew websites now called Kvik, if I'm saying it right, K-V-E-I-K, which could very well maybe have gone, you know, started in Viking times. It's just uh, continually reused, and they just keep it in a quart jar. They just Take a bunch of the sludge, you know, the trub, whatever you want to call it, from the last batch, put it in a quart jar, put it in their refrigerator, and then take that out and add it to the batch. I mean, there's nothing more to it than that. No extra sanitation, nothing. And it sounds like the, the beers they make are pretty damn good, too. Pretty cool, man. Um, what other types of fermentation do you do? Oh, pretty much everything I can ferment. I mean, I'm sure there, there are some things I haven't gotten to yet, but I, I do a lot of uh, food fermentation, uh, vegetables, 
mostly. So sauerkraut, kimchi, you know, I've got pickles going right now, just kind of New York style deli pickles. Um, you know, I've, I grow mushrooms on logs in my yard, so I ferment those. You know, I've played around with just little bits of, you know, things like making soft cheeses and, you know, just, just whenever I have something extra on hand that is going to get tossed if I don't do something with it, then I'll try to find a way to ferment it. Oh, and uh, hot sauces. Hot I, sauce. grow a lot of, I grow a lot of peppers, and I've been making fermented hot sauce. So you ferment the peppers with some gar- garlic and onions, and usually not much more than that. And then once it gets all nice and fermenting, you can use the juice as kind of a Tabasco-type sauce, or you can take the peppers and grind them up and make more of a paste. So, yeah, I, I ferment a lot of stuff. I'm going to be messing around with that myself this year. I've got a uh, scorpion pepper plant that's just beginning to produce, Ooh. and uh, I, I don't think I will do all scorpion peppers. I am not a masochist when it comes to hot <laughs> pepper sauce, but you know, a bit of that in there seems like kind of a cool thing to go with. Yep, and you can, you, know, you can do peppers and beer and stuff, too. you got to be careful with that. Oh. But. <laughs> oh, I've made some mistakes. Alcohol is really good at extracting capsaicin, better than you'd think. Yeah, yeah. I, I met this crazy old dude one time at a like a an event at a homebrew shop, and uh, he was making all different types of beers and, and meads, and he had a jalapeno mead, and it was really 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 mild. It was so mild that like you were like that's really good, but I'm not sure what that is. And then you, you know you finally go it's jalapeno. So I'm like well. I like that, but I, you know, I'm not going to make this 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 jalapeno meat where you can't even taste the pepper. So I threw down, man, and I ended up like it was not drinkable because the capsaicin like would stick to the inside of your mouth and and persist. And oh, yeah. even though it was only a jalapeno, it was ridiculous how long it was painful. And what I ended up doing was like I, I think I made like a gallon batch, and I ended up blending it with like four gallons of a plain mead to make it work and then it was okay it was you gotta be careful with peppers yeah i intentionally overdid it on a one gallon batch of mead just to see you know if i I didn't throw a whole lot in but i took some jalapenos and maybe some serranos or something and just plopped a handful in and then when it was fully fermented i tasted it a tiny bit of it and i'm like yeah, no, this is definitely a you know a case of overdoing it. But my intent was to find a way to use it in cooking if it didn't work out. And so just a little bit of that to base some meat in or something like that gave it a real nice pepper flavor. That's a good point. Using it as a cooking uh, ingredient would still work. That would probably have been easier than making like four gallons more of meat to blend it out. Yeah, well, that's another thing I would have done too. It's just yeah. in this case, I was thinking that was my goal early was to use it in cooking. But I, I gave it a taste just to see and. It wasn't overwhelming. I mean, I can handle some fairly hot, but it, it definitely was not an enjoyable thing to drink. <laughs> so you now are a teacher and a presenter in addition to a writer. Can you talk about kind of the sort of events you do and how people can, like, participate in one of your workshops or attend one of your presentations? Yeah, um, I, I went into writing initially because I wanted to basically I was I had this dream of just kind of living – on, on a mountain somewhere and just writing and maybe occasionally traveling, but it turns out you have to promote your work, so I, I've become an extrovert in addition to being an introvert. Um, 
So the, the main thing that I travel around the country to do is uh, the Mother Earth News fairs. So Mother Earth News magazine has this traveling circus, basically. I mean, I, I you know, all over the country, every couple months, I am hanging out with all the same people and you know, all the presenters and people who put on the fair. And sometimes people who are attending hang out afterwards and party. I mean, it's it's just fun. But that, that's a really fun one to attend. And there's so many other workshops and presenters and speakers, most of them authors. So that's the big one. And then what, when I go to those, then I try to kind of find other things to book. So like for in February, I think it is, uh, I'll be doing the one in Belton, Texas. And I don't think I have anything booked other than that, but I'm I'm looking into it. And then there's one in Oregon in August. And as far as my hometown or the town I live in, Berea, Kentucky, uh, we have a thing called the Learn Shops in every July. And for a whole month, all, all, there's all kinds of artisans here who teach all kinds of stuff. Uh, so I teach about mead, and I do a sauerkraut class, and I'll probably be adding beer and something else. And that's just, you know, I get people from a couple states away coming to that sometimes. So and, I, and on my website, I update all these. So it's just my name, jeremy-zimmerman.com. Yeah, at, at the moment, I don't have a ton booked other than some book fairs because what I'm doing is planning kind of my tour for next spring and summer. So I'm thinking I may head out to Seattle, maybe head up possibly up to the to Maine, somewhere like that, but not, not too much official yet, unfortunately. Well, that's cool, though. I mean, I'm glad to see you doing that. It's it's one of those things that we all need to do when we're in a business. It's you know a personality-based business to some degree. And it's hard, though, because you take time away from home, and that's kind of where all the work gets done. So you have to balance work and promotion. Um, I, I certainly understand that. I do less of that now than I used to and probably less of it than I should. Um, are there any other projects you're involved in other than writing, brewing, and teaching? Um, those are kind of the, the main things, but it seems like I kind of delve into various other things in between it all. That one that's taking on more shape than it you know for a while it's just something i kind of helped a friend with on the side but it's uh i started up a little company to help sell my books and uh, this game that we developed and so we call the company viking nerds we, we we thought about you know tried to find a name or like those are the two words that describe what we're about so and so we have a game tabletop game called don't fall in the meat hall and we develop it through a there's a website thegamecrafter.com and you can make any kind of game you want, even if it's just for you and your friends and you're not even trying to sell it. They've got parts for everything. So, yeah, that's it's kind of our big thing. We're starting to do gaming conventions. And it, it's it's fun to kind of mix workshops with Make Mead. So here's how to make mead like a Viking, and here's how to drink it like a Viking. And so <laughs> the, ga- the game is kind of emulating a bunch of Vikings in a meat hall, you know, throwing things at each other and getting drunk and passing out and... So yeah, that's that's kind of my other big big venture, and our YouTube channel is actually mostly my mead making videos. Okay. So it's just just Viking nerds, and we're on Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff too. Very cool. If you were gonna like make a couple batches of let's let's take off beer and go to uh, get take off mead and go to beer since we're talking about your new book uh, this this yeah. time around. What are some of your favorite beers? And and don't give like because given the step by step how to make is, you know, laborious and, and doesn't work real well in audio anyway. But, like, you know, the main ingredients and what you like about them, pick two or three and, 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 let, and let's kind of just give the audience a, a taste of what they might learn to make if they got your book. 
Yeah, um, pulling up the recipe list in the book now so I can get some ideas. But one that I've been playing around with quite a bit is the, uh, you know, I mentioned the Finnish uh, sati beer. But a lot of other traditional beers use this ingredient too. And it's it's flavored primarily with uh, juniper. You can just use juniper berries, but when, when you're actually brewing it, uh, the, the version, you know, eastern red cedar in the eastern U.S. is a type of juniper, so I use that. So you take the branches and berries and everything. And add them to the wort. Sometimes I add some to the mash. So that that makes a really interesting kind of a kind of a cloudy, grainy sort of a beer with a sweetness, but then a bitterness that's a completely different kind of bitterness than hops. You know, it's it's not to everyone's taste, but everyone I've had try it recently has been like. And usually the first comment is, "I've never had a beer like this before," <laughs> but they seem to like it also. So yeah, you never are sure one. when somebody likes something when they're like, "Well, that's interesting." Well, yeah, uh, let's let's let me. <laughs> what do you really think? Right? These are these are pretty obvious. Yeah, the look on their face was I've never had anything like that before. It was a good look. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, it, that one's fun to play around with. Um, one thing that was fun was learning how traditionally oak bark and the bark of other trees was used in a lot of beer. So when we talk bark, we're talking about the inner, I think it's cambium it's called, which actually gives it almost a root beer sort of a flavor. And you can, I think traditionally a lot of root beers were made with the inner bark of some trees and the roots. So that, that's been a good one. I've actually got an oak bark and mushroom beer. I threw some shiitake mushrooms into it as well. And, you know, it was good. It's certainly not what you're going to, you know, if you're expecting an IPA or something, <laughs> you're not getting that, but. So I, I just, yeah, those are some of the ones I really enjoy because they're ingredients that I can literally walk out in my yard and get. And they make some pretty damn good beers, too. And what is your what are your thoughts on yeast? Are you doing, you know, I know you did quite a bit of open fermentation, wild fermentation with your meads. On the beers, do you stick more to commercial yeast? Do you do both? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I try to do a little bit of both. I still play around with the wild fermentation quite a bit. One thing that happened as I was researching the book, you know, I was planning on sticking with more like make mead like a Viking where I reference commercial yeasts, but let people know how simple it is to, to brew with wild yeast, which yeah, I do have a section on wild yeast in the book. But, you know, I did a whole chapter on yeast and started, you know, reading about how all these different strains of yeast pretty much create the styles of beer that we know of today. And so I, I really started to geek out on it and, you know, just how... You know, a British ale yeast is going to give you a very different flavor than a Belgian ale yeast. And so I really do like to you know, experiment with all the different types of commercial yeast for sure, but I'm not I'm not a stickler to I have to use this type of yeast for this type of beer. Like sometimes I'm planning a batch, and I've always got packs of yeast in my fridge, and just, oh, I'm out of a Belgian. I'll just go ahead and use a British ale, and it'll still be perfectly drinkable. Or even bread yeast. I mean, I, I, that's what uh, sati is traditionally brewed with. Is they would use the same yeast for baking as they would wood for beer. So I, I've done some beers with bread yeast, and they've turned out perfectly good. I've done some meats with bread yeast, and I've made um, air quote fuel, right? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of uh, a lot of uh, mash for for fuel that you might accidentally spill it into your mouth using uh, bread yeast, and it's it's always worked out pretty well. Alcohol tolerance of about fourteen percent, and that's you know that's sufficient for beer, that's for sure. 
not some of the meads I make, but it's it's sufficient for beer. Yeah, when I do it with mead, I just like a you know small mead, so I'm just making a lower alcohol mead that I can drink within a month or so, and bread yeast works just fine for that. I've actually found that I really enjoy some of those small meads. That was another thing I picked up from you. Like I didn't have to be bombing, you know, fourteen, eighteen percent in every batch of mead I made either. Yeah, um, and I've been doing them a lot more lately after the book, partially because yeah, you're using less honey and it's less time, but you can experiment with so many more flavors because you you know a lot quicker what works and what doesn't and it's kind of like just you know enjoying a beer without you know a nice high alcohol meat is is nice but takes longer and you drink it in smaller amounts you know the first the first workshop i did after i read your book i did a five gallon batch of a raspberry uh a raspberry ginger uh small mead and i think it ended up being about seven percent and it people immediately expected because it was pink you know It's going to be sweet, and it you know fully attenuates, you know totally out. And raspberry actually is not that sweet to begin with, and when you attenuate it out, it's it's tart. And uh, I think that keg got floated on the first night. Like yeah. if you didn't get here for setup night, you didn't get any of it. People, yeah, it was like it's a session meet, but you don't have to drink it in one session. But it <laughs> it went pretty fast, and you know I think there is a thing with that. Like a lot, have you noticed this? Like when you tell somebody you make beer. And they're not a home brewer. They're not somebody that really knows you. Like the first thing they want to know is, is it really strong? Like that's their first question. Yeah. You know, yeah how drunk does it get you? Well, how many are you going to drink? <laughs> there are a couple I get that I, I get quite often, and that's that's one of them. And yeah, like with mead, it's like you know, what does mead taste like? Well, it depends on the mead you're drinking. <laughs> it varies quite a bit. I actually hate the term honey wine because it's yeah. just, you know. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree. Sometimes I see it as honey mead wine. It's like, I think part of it is just it's a marketing thing. It's that they want people to get an idea of what it is. What it is. I think Sometimes even, I think it's a loophole thing, too, to get around certain states' laws. Yeah, I think it actually, I think I have read some wineries do that for legal reasons. Yeah, when you call it a certain thing, you can only put certain things in it. Yeah. Yeah, what do you, what is your what is your philosophy on meat as far as the the, the world of sweetness? I, I I find most commercial meats personally to be way too sweet. I don't really like that. I get the guess the place for like a dessert meat or something, but I I like to do whether they're uh, a small or uh, something with a higher gravity. I still like to you know do a full attenuation, and I like to have a, a, a dry mead. But yeah, that's, that's one reason I started making meat is because I'd had a couple, and I could see the potential, but it was just too much. Yeah. And you know, the, the first meat I ever had, I didn't have another one for years. It was actually given to me um, for a, a wedding present. <laughs> it was like, and I, you know, the whole story about honeymoon being where you get that term for meat. Yeah, my wife and I, I think we barely finished half the bottle, and then we're just like, yeah, I'm done with this. I don't like this stuff. Yeah, and then at some point I started to pick up like mead from Denmark, like Dansk mead, uh, D-A-N-S-K I think, Mjod, M-J-O-D. It's one of my favorite meads. It's a little pricey, but it's like drinking a brandy. And when I started having some of that stuff, or out of uh, out of Colorado, I think Redstone Meader, I've liked their meads. So yeah, then I started to realize that oh, it is possible to not make it so it's incredibly sweet. 
And again, it's it has its place. If it's a really good sweet mead, I, I can sip on a little bit as a dessert mead. But, but in general, I, I I don't have any interest in sweet meads. Yeah, I mean, I think my my thing was for all the talk this stuff gets, it can't suck this bad. This yeah. this this cannot be the thing that I've read about. This cannot be you know the thing that Robin Hood's men got drunk on and stole from the king. This this can't be it. There has to be more than this. By God, there must, and I shall find it. And like the first time I made a batch, I was like. How do they even do that? I, it, like to me, I'm like, how do you like? They must stop the fermentation with sorbates or something because yeah. I have never had a mead finish that sweet, and I can't imagine the amount of honey that you'd have to use with a you know a yeast that'll handle you know a wine yeast will handle sixteen eighteen percent. Like how much honey would you have to use to leave that much residual syrup sugar? I, <laughs> yeah, they're definitely stopping the fermentation. That's the only way it could happen, and it's probably and for I, expediency because they get it done faster. That too, and I think it, a lot of times it's wineries who happen to produce a mead. And I've actually talked to people who run wineries, and they, they said that people come in and when they see a mead, they expect it to be sweet, so they're doing it for their mm. customers. But now it's getting to the point where all these craft meaders are popping up all over the country, and we've got you know session meads on tap and. Yeah, it depends, and not all of them are widely distributed. But you know, there are a lot. There's a lot more variety of meads starting to show up commercially. Gotcha. So, um, how do people follow you and contact you on the internet? Um, well, I've got to the point where I have like 12 billion different places. So, (laughs) (laughs) best way is just Google my name, and you'll find a lot of it. But you know, I'm on Facebook, and I have an official. You know, kind of the, the business type page. That's for my. It's uh, if you just look up my name, it's Jeremy Zimmerman Dash Writer. But if you type in the URL, it's Facebook. Um, I think it's G- my first name, which is J E R E M E Z I M M Yeti. So and then I, you know, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and all of that's just pretty much Jeremy Zim. Well, cool, man. I'll make sure that links to like your the the big three social media and your website are in the show notes for people today, and uh, just so I don't mess it up. Episode twenty three oh four. Took a quick look at the screen there. Episode twenty three oh four. Brew beer like a Yeti with Jerry Jeremy Zimmerman. You guys can get on by there and find all the ways to connect with him and uh, pick up his books. Uh, his book, Brew Beer Like a Yeti, I have not completely read through it yet. He did send me an advanced copy, and I have been going through it a bit at a time as I've had the time. Absolutely, fabulously loved Make Mead Like a Viking, so I highly recommend both of them. I'll have links to both of those in the show notes today. And with that, Jeremy, man, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right, guys, I really enjoyed talking to Jeremy today. I mean, it's not a hard subject to get me talking about. On the note of alcohol, though, I wanted to let you guys know about something that I'm going to be doing next weekend. Not this weekend, next weekend. I'd love to have some some feedback from you guys. Maybe these going to be there. Come in San Antonio. It is the Veterans Alcoholic Beverage Competition. Uh, this is vabevcomp.com is the domain name again. V-A-B-E-V-comp.com. I had a little tiny bit of feedback when I've put this out a couple times and not really any excitement over it. 
It seems like a pretty, pretty cool thing. There's going to be a car show. There's going to be a barbecue competition. And there's going to be an alcoholic beverage competition. You can get a tasting cup and go around and taste all different types of adult beverages. Uh, again, it is the 13th and 14th in San Antonio, Texas. And I feel like I've been putting this out once in a while. It's like throwing a flat basketball against the wall. Uh, the tennis is supposed to be somewhere in the neighborhood of like 50,000 people. Uh, you, you'd think maybe I'd hear from some of y'all. Um, I'm happy to just go down there and participate. They asked me to participate in this as a judge. And they asked me to do that because they want their entire panel of judges to be veterans who are entrepreneurs. And when somebody makes a request of you, will you come do this as a veteran entrepreneur to support a veteran's movement, um, you, 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 you kind of don't say no unless you have to. And I didn't have to, so I didn't say no. So I'm happy to go down. I'm sure I'll meet some people. I'm sure it'll be good for TSP as a whole. But, you know, Texas is a big place, I understand. But we had a lot of people in the area. And except for Mike and Sue Lupreze, I hadn't heard much. Uh, it, we're getting in a short time here. If I'm going to put together any kind of like a, a meetup after hours or something like that, uh, I need to get on it. Uh, you know, if I get a few dozen people, it, it's worth doing. If it's like two or three, I'll just come down there and see me and find me where the judges are. And it, I, I will say this, no matter what we do, if you're going to come to this thing, check it out, et cetera, it, shoot me an email and put TSPC, uh, BevComp in the subject line and I'll, I'll get I'll send you back like my my cell phone and stuff like that and uh, put you on an email list and that way I'll let people know like what's going on where I'm going to be what I'm involved with that type of thing but this looks really fun uh, I've gone ahead and sponsored this uh, event as well with some other really cool people uh, that have sponsored the event um, BMC accounting five by five brewing um, Black Patch Distilling, Spoils of War, Pop Smoke, Brewing America, Justice Label, uh, Scars and Stripes, uh, Green Zone Hero, uh, Beard Barbecue, these are all sponsors, Blanco Cigar Company, uh, Fortis, uh, Trial Lawyers, uh, Rally Point, Veteran Home Inspections, Canine Salute, uh, J-Dog Junk Removal and Hauling, uh, Atex uh, Wholesale Liquors, uh, Fit Brewing Company, 12 Bravo Construction, the Salty Soldier, and uh, Steve Kuhn uh, have all uh, sponsored this thing. So it's, it's a pretty cool-looking deal. I'd love to see some of y'all there. They're going to have beers and hard spirits and, and, and all kinds of stuff. Uh, the products are uh, featured are from people who are veterans, and some are from people that aren't. Uh, it's a pretty inexpensive contest to actually enter, uh, and I think it's it's everything from like nano breweries up to larger scale stuff. So uh, again, check it out vabevcomp.com. I'll have a link in the show notes for you. And I'll put out a standalone post about it again and, and see if there's any real interest in, uh, in in doing something with it. If not, like I said, I'll just go down there and drink. The guy asked me like, well, what days you're going to need a hotel? And I'm like, oh, I'm like, come in Thursday. So Thursday night. And he's like, well, do you want to leave Sunday or, or, or Monday? And I'm like, I think I need to leave Monday morning. I don't know if I want to spend Sunday judging alcohol and then drive home from San Antonio. So I'll be down there for the full weekend and uh, definitely look forward to syncing up with some of y'all if we can. Anyway, uh, that brings us to our item of the day today. Item of the day today is the Cobra. CPI 890 800-watt compact power inverter. Uh, I have this out because for a very, very long time, I recommended um, a, a different power inverter, uh, the Whistler XP800i. 
And I, I thought that was just the best value in, you know, modified sine wave power inverters that, that was there. And Whistler just, for some reason or other, stopped making them. Uh, I just can't find them anywhere. And the ones that are on sale, like used or whatever, are like, because they're gone now, I think people are retarded and they think they're getting like $200 bucks for one. You know, it's a $55 inverter. It's all it ever was. It's all it ever will be. Uh, but they went away. So I started looking at inverters and said, well, what can I recommend now? And I was talking about it with a few people, and I had a little bit of an email conversation with some finalists with uh, Sean uh, Mills, who was on the show recently, and our newest member of the Expert Council, who is an uh, electrical engineer. And uh, he, he said, I, I really like the Cobras for that level of product. So that was kind of the last... Uh, the last uh, little tipping of the scale and the Cobra winning out on my new lead recommendation. Uh, the, 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 the line, though, what I really like about it is they have inverters all the way down to, um, I think it's a hundred and, let me see here, it's like right, 130 watts all the way up to 2,500 watts. And they have a 200 watt model I really like. I have a link in the review on it, too. It is designed to sit in a cup holder. It is made kind of shaped like a, a you know like a, a big gulp cup, and so you can stick that in, there, and then you've got two USB ports and a single uh, AC port, and uh, so it'd be good for you know maybe charging a laptop or something like that, uh, whilst you know also charging some small devices. Important some important stuff about power inverters. Number one, your car is not a lightsaber, in the words of Stephen Harris. It, it, it's, it's just not going to happen. Uh, there's only so much power in a car battery, and there's only so much power coming out of your alternator. So if you go and you put something like a 1,500-watt inverter on your car, it, it can give you, you know, 1,000, 1,200 watts power, but it's not going to do it for very long. Um, it's just not going to work. Another thing is, as you go up in inverter power, you go from being, you know, where you can put alligator clips on your battery, you need to be bolting it down on your larger projects. Uh, then the next thing is, your, some of your smaller ones, like a 400-watt inverter, they'll often have alligator clips that can clip onto your battery, and they'll have a 12-volt VDC plug that goes into like a cigarette lighter-style plug. Let me tell you something about that, folks. Just a little electrical 101 here. That little outlet in your car can handle about 150 watts being drawn through it. That doesn't mean you can't try to draw more through it. And if you do, something's going to pop. Either a fuse in the inverter or the inverter itself is going to fry, or more than likely you're going to actually pop a fuse in your vehicle. So if you are going to be drawing more than, let's say, 120 watts through an inverter, you need to then go to a clamp-on style inverter and clamp onto the battery versus plug into the outlet. Those outlets just cannot handle, and that includes surge. So if you have something that's going to surge but then runs at lower wattage, again, you got to go clamp-on. And then the last thing, um, this is real electricity. I think sometimes we think of electricity from a car or a battery as somehow different than the electricity in your home. Um, it, it can hurt you and it can kill you. If you don't know what you're doing, get some help with your projects, especially when you start, you know, trying to go build some off-grid solar and you're, 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 you know, strapping six or eight batteries together in a bank and hooking up a 2,500-watt inverter to it. You're playing with real power at that point, and it's not something that's that hard. There are just certain things you need to do right. And you can do them, and you can even really pretty much learn as you go, but you need to learn from a good source. On that note, if, you, if you've never been there before, Stephen Harris has a website called Battery1234.com. He's got a set of three videos you can get on there. 
that shows you how to select a battery, how to build a battery bank, how to build a mobile battery bank for your vehicle, etc. If you follow those instructions, you can do anything you want with these inverters. But just use some caution. You can kill or hurt yourself with the power that comes out of a battery. I just want to be clear about that. It doesn't happen a lot, but it does unfortunately happen. Lastly on these things, um, and I say this in my review of this product line, I have given up on reading reviews on inverters on Amazon.com because I think people are stupid, and when it comes to inverters, they're super stupid. Um, yeah, you know, you can't run your 1,200-watt draw um, coffee maker uh, on an 800-watt inverter. It won't work. Um, if you do get a 1,500-watt inverter and try to run your 1,200-watt coffee maker, it will quickly kill your battery. Yes, that is a real thing. Yes, if you run your battery all the way down to zero, your inverter will start to whine when it gets down into like 4 or 5%, and there's not enough power there anymore. Uh, all types of things. No, you can't run 1,200 watts of, of lighting uh, at a trade show on a 400-watt inverter. These are all actual negative reviews on this particular inverter and other inverters that I've read. And when I read stuff like that, I just sigh and think, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't think you're qualified to use electricity, even uh, with an extension cord and a wall outlet, uh, if you're trying to do these things. That just doesn't work. Now, I will say this about inverters. Inverters fail. As far as all electronics are subject to failure. Anybody that's been an adult for more than a day knows this, um, and most teenagers do as well. And inverters seem to have a higher rate of failure from the good to the from high end to low end. A higher rate of failure than most electronics. I have the saying, two is one, one is none. And in inverters, I believe it 100%. You, know, you can buy an inverter for 50 to 55 bucks, buy two. If you can't buy two today, buy one and then put it in your future, but eventually build up having at least two inverters. If one fails, if it's under warranty, and this has a two-year warranty, send it back and get a new one. If it fails after two years, buy a new one. It's the cost of preparedness. And that way, if one fails, you have another one. I haven't had a lot of inverters fail, but I've had more inverters fail than, let's say, laptop computers or you know cable routers or Bluetooth speakers or something like that. They, they do seem, because of what they do, uh, and I've, I've used Duracell, I've used Cobras, I've used Whistlers, I've, I've used a bunch of different ones. Uh, No-name varieties from Harbor Freight, whatever the lead variety is from uh, Tractor Supply, I've, I've got one of those. And, and I've used tons of them, and I've had, you know, here and there, I've had them just finally conk out on you. It, it is something to consider. Uh, so just, but anyway, I, again, though, for 55 bucks, I don't know a preparedness item that does more for you, you know, under $60 than a good compact 800-watt power inverter. So you can check that out. Remember, you can always support the show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Our song of the day today kind of picks up in a way, except it was before yesterday's song time-wise, but it kind of picks and ties back into yesterday's song. Yesterday's song talked about things like the Kennedy assassination and specifically Robert Kennedy. Um, today's song does too. The song is actually by um, The Rascals. And it was uh, their biggest hit. It charted number one all the way back in 1968. And it's called People Got to Be Free. The song had a message that resonated loud and clear in 68. All the world over, so easy to see. People everywhere just want to be free. Freedom lost a champion on April 4, 1968, when Martin Luther King Jr. was gunned down. And when Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated on June 5th, it was dealt another devastating blow. 
Eddie Brighetti and Felix Cavier uh, of the Rascals wrote this song in reaction to those murders, considering King and Kennedy's message in a simple missive calling for unity and understanding. It's hard to argue with the song's message. It's not overtly political. It doesn't lash out at any personal organization in particular. Combined with an up-tempo rock groove, it had all the makings of a hit, indeed. And it is a universal message. People want to be free. That's what people really want. Unfortunately, I think the big problem that we have in today's day and age, and it's the biggest reason there isn't more freedom in the world, is people want to be free, but they don't want the responsibilities that come with freedom. And, and therefore, they're, ready, they're, they're willing to trade freedom for safety and comfort, but more so than anything else, they're willing to trade freedom for a lack of responsibility. See, the more free you are, the more responsibility you have. Think about it this way. What is the freest state that you could exist in? Somewhere in the middle of the wilderness with not another human around. You are as free as you could ever be in that situation. And guess what? You're responsible for everything in your life, how you're going to feed yourself, etc. As soon as we start interacting with other human beings, we give up some freedoms. And that's not all bad. And before you jump the gun there thinking I've lost my mind, think about it this way. When you get married, you give up some freedoms. And you do it for the trade-off of having someone you love in your life. But you are not as free when you are married as when you are single. You know, if you want to go somewhere when you're single, you just get up and go. If you want to go somewhere when you're married, you at least talk to your partner about it, or you should, out of just decency. I'm talking about having to ask permission every time you want to do something, but, you know, if you're going to leave and go away for a while, then your husband or wife would like to know that you're not going to be there. So you at least have to discuss it with them. When you go to make a spending decision, it's something you make jointly, etc. So you give up freedoms. When you have children, you give up freedoms. I think it's worth it, but you do. There's no doubt that a single couple is more free in their life than a couple with children. And so when you get a job, you get an income, but you give up a certain amount of freedom. And there's got to be a balance point somewhere between freedom and comfort. But people are now selling out the essential freedoms that actually make us free for the comfort of not having the responsibility of caring for themselves. You know who has the comfort of not having the responsibility of caring for themselves? Slaves. I think what happened in our world is so many of the wrongs were righted that the caged bird got a little too far from the cage and it's begun trying to peck its way back in the door, sadly enough. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Cause it's coming right on through 